Good morning and welcome to Rising. I'm Spencer Brown filling in for Amber Athey. Jessica, it is wonderful to be back with you while Amber is off at her wedding. Last time we did this, it was Friday Eve. Now it's actually Friday. How are you doing? It's great to be on with you on a Friday. Why don't you tell us uh, what's going on in D.C.? Well, Jessica, we've got some developing news this morning on Capitol Hill where there's been no shortage of that. Donald Trump has endorsed Jim Jordan for Speaker of the House, quelling speculation the former president could himself take the helm. In a Truth Social post last night, Trump said, quote, Jordan is strong on crime, borders, our military and veterans, and the Second Amendment. Jim, his wife Polly, and family are outstanding. He will be a great Speaker of the House and has my complete and total endorsement. Uh, you know, there was a lot of speculation uh, around this as uh, after the ouster of McCarthy, wondering, you know, who's going to fill the vacuum? There was talk of some Republican members of the House nominating Trump for the spot. And he even kind of said, you know, well, I could fill in maybe on an interim basis. What do you make of this and what's happening? You know, is, is Trump really out of the running or is he still going to try to keep his name in there even after he's endorsed Jordan? No, I think Trump's out of the running. I think he's a bit busy with all of these court cases he's got to deal with, probably going to try and appeal that fraud case. So I think there's a lot going on in the Trump camp, probably too much going on for him to also be Speaker of the House. I think Jim Jordan's kind of a predictable pick for Donald Trump. I don't know if we'll see Republicans come out and support Jim Jordan. I think the most fascinating development is Matt Gates deciding to kind of align himself with some of the populist faction of the Democratic Party. The other day when talking about this, talking about the expulsion of Kevin McCarthy, I was like, you know what would be really cool? If the populist faction of either party worked together to actually get something done and pressure the establishment to, to make some policy changes, now we're seeing an inkling of that happening. So I think it's possible it won't be Kevin McCarthy after 30 votes again, uh, but maybe it'll be Kevin McCarthy because they agreed to Ro Khanna's plan. Uh, that might not happen because the plan's a lofty one and a lot of members of Congress really like trading stocks. But I think we're in an interesting position. It might end up being someone like Tom Emmer, uh, but I don't think it's going to be a Jim Jordan or a Donald Trump, to be honest. What's your prediction? Yeah, no, I think it's been very interesting to see how sort of the battle lines have changed a little bit, even just on the Republican side of the House after all this happened. Obviously, like you mentioned, that plan from Ro Khanna is something that I think a lot of the American people would obviously support because it's getting rid of things like, you know, members of Congress being able to do these stock trades that obviously aid them in their in their very profitable endeavors sort of outside of the House chamber. Uh, but it will be interesting to see, you know, sort of where those battle lines come down because you have the people who were in leadership under McCarthy kind of looking to just move up the ladder a wrong or two. Uh, but obviously, Jim Jordan now, especially with Trump's endorsement, is seen kind of as the outsider. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see where, again, that support actually falls among that very narrow GOP majority. Uh, but in the wake of Tuesday's proverbial coup on Capitol Hill, lobbyists cozy with the Republican establishment are already out to avenge ousted Speaker Kevin McCarthy. According to reporting by a friend of the show, Lee Fang, a Ukraine government lobbyist is calling for Matt Gates's expulsion over what happened. So now Matt Gates, uh, as we've said, has made the rounds, railing against the influence of special interests on the Republican agenda in Congress. He took to Twitter yesterday to propose an arrangement to Republicans looking to raise the threshold on the motion to vacate the speakership, saying enact the reforms recently proposed by Democratic Representative Ro Khanna and you have a deal. Ro Khanna was actually on Rising just last month talking about his reform bill. Let's watch that. The president and members of Congress, we should have zero PAC money. We should not have leadership PACs. I don't take 
PAC money, never have, don't have a leadership PAC. We shouldn't have money from corporations or, or lobbyists. Um, members of Congress shouldn't be allowed to go become lobbyists ever. Uh, members of Congress shouldn't benefit personally through stock trading. Uh, members of Congress should have be term limited, as should Supreme Court justices, and we need an ethics code for Supreme Court justices. The amazing thing is this common sense proposal has had so much support from uh, across the aisle, and I think it is a uh, opportunity for us to, to, to run on reform, to make reform. No one in the current political system is perfect. What voters are looking for is a bold agenda to fix the system. This week, Matt Gates laid out how a small number of politicians hold the country's interests captive in service to large dollar donors. Let's watch. There is a sophisticated system in Washington, D.C. that takes all of the major spending decisions we have to make and it backs those decisions up against shutdown politics and the end of the year and holidays in the hopes that a very small group of people can make the major decisions regarding the entire seven trillion dollar federal budget. And when they do that, they're able to market to lobbyists and special interests that their authority and power is supercharged. And thus, they're able to extract more money from those lobbyists and special interests. There are hundreds of millions of dollars worth of IOUs on K Street right now where the lobbyists all have their offices that are about as useful as Confederate money with Kevin McCarthy out of the speakership because to his, you know, give the guy his due, he raised a half a billion dollars for uh, Republican campaigns, but a lot of that money came with strings attached. So Matt Gates making some substantive points, uh, unlikely partnership, Rokana and Matt Gates. We said the same thing about Matt Gates and AOC when they were initially talking about insider trading in Congress. I think this is a step forward. I think having members of the majority party using their leverage to get things done is good. The Republicans didn't actually have to give up any real power. Uh, for Matt Gates to leverage this, a lot of people said AOC and the squad using their power within the Republic or within the Democratic Party on the left would result in potentially the Democrats losing the speakership as a whole. I think Matt Gates has proven that there's a way to do this without costing uh, your party the majority seat, and you have some leverage to get something real done here. Absolutely. And I think, you know, when you talk to people outside of the Beltway, which is a really good thing to do, and I think too few people, both in elected office and the media in this town, do that, everybody just talks about how, you know, Congress is corrupt. These are all crooks. They're just here to spend your money, your tax dollars, and you never actually see the result of what the government is supposedly doing with your money. And a lot of that, again, goes back to things like this insider trading, things like this revolving door between Capitol Hill and K Street. And you understand why the American people are so fed up with this, because, again, they're not seeing the benefit. It. Every time somebody, you know, goes out on TV and says, we achieved this for the American people and the American people turn around and say, OK, where is it? And so I think addressing that would be something that would be very popular with the American people who, again, want changes like this to be made. So that way they know that when they vote for somebody to represent them in D.C., they're not just taking that sort of the assent of the governed and then turning around and using that as just a, a money printer for themselves in order to do, you know, these stock trades that they get a ton of money for to only work with and listen to their former colleagues who have moved on to be lobbyists. I think that sort of uh, important step would be good. And like you said, in this way, uh, Matt Gates has allowed sort of this discussion to come about even without giving up the Republican majority in the House, which obviously I think should be viewed as a win for conservatives who are for smaller government and a more transparent government. 
Yeah, I think uh, a lot of members of Congress and just like American politicians as a whole have gotten away for so long with this narrative that the economy is something that runs entirely independent of the government. We have a free market. No, of course, the decisions of Congress influence what happens in our economy, what businesses fail, what businesses succeed. They have a lot of power. You, a member of Congress with the task of regulating corporate America, regulating our economic activity within the country and abroad in many ways, you should not be allowed to invest in the same companies and corporations that you regulate. You don't only directly regulate the corporations that you can invest in currently as a member of Congress, but you also in many ways regulate the workforce that they hire. You regulate the materials that they rely on to produce whatever it is they produce as they come in across our border. So to think that those same members of Congress can invest in stock and trade in Wall Street is insane. If you stop any average person on the street, they would say, obviously, that's a conflict of interest, that they could take a bunch of money from a corporation as well uh, on the lobbying front and then govern in the direction of whatever legislation that company wants. Uh, you're now accountable to that corporation if they're paying you more than your regular congressional salary. Now you work for them. You don't work for the American people that elected you. And so it's about time that we have legislation like this. I think people are also ready for term limits given what we've seen with how old members of Congress are. Yeah, completely. I mean, I think there's been a lot of concern just watching the way the government has functioned in the last you know, year or so. There's been a lot of questions about who's in charge and how they got those positions. And like you were pointing out, you know, who are they actually answering to? Are they answering to the voters who sent them to Washington or to, are they answering to some other power that might not have the best interests of the American people at large in mind? Uh, definitely something to keep an eye on, especially term limits. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. Joe Rogan is out with a new scathing take on former President Donald Trump's legal troubles. He said it was worth between 300 and 700 million dollars. And uh, they were saying that it's worth 18 million. <laughs> 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 it's like they don't even try to pretend. Yeah. Like why, if, why does no one trust the, guy, the mainstream? If the guy says his house is worth a billion dollars, right? Yeah. And then you come along and say, no, 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 it's worth like 800 million. Forbes says it's worth as much as 700 million. We'll call it 700 million. Now you got a reasonable argument. Yeah. yeah. But if you say 18 million, like you got to know that's like a palace. <laughs> the place is a palace. It's 20 acres. Get and the f out of here. This is great. You can't do that. That's like too obvious that you're just, you don't give a f about the truth. This morning, New York Attorney General Letitia James went on the offensive using Twitter to make her case against the former president with an infographic detailing his alleged financial fraud. Meanwhile, elsewhere in Trump world, the former president has dropped his $500 million lawsuit against former attorney Michael Cohen. According to reporting in The Hill, Trump has been delaying sitting for a deposition in the case. So that, I guess, explains why he's been delaying it if he's not serious about pursuing it. Um, look, this has been kind of a mess from the start, and I feel like a lot of people, now that we've moved on from the 2016 presidential primaries on the Republican side, have maybe forgotten the difference between taking Trump seriously and literally. Uh, whether or not you know he's really asserting that his home is worth, his properties are worth this much money as a serious thing that he's saying or a literal thing, I think might be missing the point that he's always been prone to exaggeration, right? And that's sort of his speaking style 
lifestyle. He's this big braggadocious New Yorker. He's a businessman. They always do things like this. But obviously, normally that doesn't run up against a court of law and official, you know, valuations on his home and his properties. Uh, and it seems like you know that it, his style does not necessarily meld well with a courtroom. And I still, most of the photos I've seen where Trump is sitting in the courtroom for this trial in New York, it looks like something AI would generate because it's just so strange to see him sitting and being unable to react or respond. Uh, what has been your take? Have you been following this? And what do you think? Where do you think this is going? Yeah, I think the whole Trump trials are hilarious. I would love to see Trump sit in a deposition for his own attorney's lawsuit. He is suing his attorney, and in that deposition, Trump would have to plead the fifth. It would be hilarious. They would just simply be asking him what he tasked his lawyer, Michael Cohen, to do. Very easy, theoretically, uh, questions to answer. But not for Donald Trump, not for someone like him, who very clearly we we heard in the depositions with the, the fraud case trial, uh, Cohen was very aware of the fraud that was going on. This deposition would be so easy. He's honestly smart for not sitting down for it. Uh, a lot of the depositions for this case were quite funny. I think we'll get into them later in the show. But to have Donald Trump not be willing to sit for the own his own lawsuit's deposition tells you just how much fraud he's been committing. And so I think it's kind of hilarious. I do agree with you that it's funny to watch him sit there silently, unable to react in a court of law. And this is something that they wanted cameras on them when they were in the courtroom. And I don't think it's playing to their benefit at all. Yeah, no, it, it's been very interesting how, how much effort has been put in by those going after Trump to make sure theoretically that they could, you know, either humiliate him as much as possible or make sure that they were seen as going after him as much as possible. But as we've seen with each progressing indictment against him, his poll numbers have gotten better in the Republican primary for 2024, so much so that Trump has repeatedly asked to be indicted a fifth time or a sixth time or how many other times people can find to bring cases against him. And so it, it, it's been interesting to see how televised this is. Obviously, in this New York case, you have sort of this goofy video that's become memed around the internet with uh, TV show theme songs put over it of the judge in the courtroom just kind of smiling and shrugging. You've got, obviously, the attorney general, Letitia James, in the courtroom just sort of glaring burning a hole in his back with her eyes. You've got Trump sitting there. It really is just a very strange thing to see. And it, it sort of gives us a preview in this New York case of what things are going to look like in the Georgia case in Fulton County, because obviously that is also a place where cameras will be allowed and is different from the federal cases, the case being brought against him here in D.C. over January 6th and the case down in Florida uh, over the classified documents being kept at Mar-a-Lago. And so it is interesting to see how this is going to play out. And again, I think Donald Trump, as this man who really you know rose to prominence and has the name ID that he did before being president, thanks to his work on TV shows like The Apprentice, Celebrity Apprentice, interesting to see that he can still, even when he's not in control, sort of compel an audience or draw an audience to see what he's doing and have so many people still talking about him and what he's doing. Uh, do you think that there is a downside to all of this? You know, being televised, obviously, with the polls, it doesn't seem like it. You know, he went to Fulton County and had his mugshot taken in Georgia and is now selling all this merch with his mugshot on it. It seems like him being in a courtroom and sitting in the defendant's position is not actually having any harm on his polling numbers or his chances at 2024. Yeah, I think we have to take this case by case. In the fraud case, it's kind of humorous to think that he simply inflated the, the valuation or the value of his assets 
for the purpose of seeming like he's more rich than he is. That's not something that necessarily hurts anyone. And I think when someone considers Donald Trump being indicted and that determining whether or not they vote for someone, it's like, are they a good person? We already knew Trump was the kind of guy that wanted to seem like the wealthiest, most powerful dude. This doesn't change a lot of people's opinions of Donald Trump. And so I can see why the argument is made that this is something that is petty. I would much rather have seen a lawsuit brought before Donald Trump about unpaid wages, unpaid contracts to a lot of the construction workers that have worked on his properties. That maybe have made a difference. That is something that directly injured other people. And so I think things might go a little bit differently in Fulton County, Georgia, where we have you know, some evidence come out showing his communication regarding the election in 2020. I think the case might look a little bit different in DC. We've already had the public, the court of public opinion have their hearing on January 6th in Congress. Uh, but the, also the case in Florida, I don't see having as much of an impact either. A lot of people have made up their mind as to how they feel about Trump hoarding these supposedly still classified documents. It seems he admitted they were still classified himself. Not much to litigate there. So I think people made their minds up about that. I really think the crux of this whole thing is Fulton County, Georgia, because it concerns an election. A lot of people that support Donald Trump genuinely believed that it was stolen. Many of them still do. So if it comes out that Trump didn't believe that and was still fighting to win in 2020, I could see that changing some folks' views of him. Yeah, I think uh, the Georgia case especially will be interesting because of how many co-defendants there are and how it's sort of this cast of people who are around Trump for so many years both leading up to during the 2020 election and then afterwards. Uh, so it'll be very interesting to see, you know, we've had some of the defendants in that case trying to sort of split up their case from the larger group of people. Obviously the attorney or the district attorney down there, Fonnie Willis, is trying to rush this through as quickly as possible, but it just seems like that has not really been happening. And I'm, it's interesting to think about the timeline because I know we've talked about it before, but how all of these trials and the start dates and different things that the pres former president is gonna have to do so closely align with the 2024 Republican primary schedule starting you know, early next year when you have the Iowa caucuses and then moving on to the other early states followed by Super Tuesday and how he's going to have to sort of pick and choose where he goes because he has to be in the courtroom for some of these events, but not all of them. And so I, I, I do think you're right that watching this is making it a very different situation. But I think sort of the pundits who have said, oh, well, Donald Trump will not be able to run for president because he's going to have to be in a courtroom. I don't think he loses out on anything because instead of being talked about as one member of the field of candidates running in these states, it's just all talking only about him. And again, leads lends more credibility to his case that this is just like the Russia hoax. This is like the impeachments over the perfect phone call, things like that. It seems like everything, even though these people are trying to take Trump take Trump down and make him basically unpalatable to the American electorate, have only done the opposite and made him more of a hero to them, uh, like you said. And if they can't prove in Georgia that he knew that the election wasn't stolen, I don't know what happens then. I mean, I, it seems like those people who have been going after Trump will be just as responsible for his election potentially in 2024 as the same people who are saying he couldn't do it were responsible in 2016. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think as far as the, the campaigning goes and the folks saying Trump is distracted from his presidential campaign because he's at trial, I can honestly see this having absolutely no effect on the outcome of the election simply because Biden has to spend a similar amount of time out of the field because he's literally serving as president, kind of difficult to do both at once, to be stumping all across America and also uh, being the commander in chief. I can see a world where Biden plays that to his advantage. Okay, he's busy in court. 
well, I am the president of the United States. Why don't I make good on some of the policy promises I made that got people to vote for me? Uh, President Biden didn't really have to run a presidential campaign because we had the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020. He didn't have to stump constantly all across the United States. Now he can do that, but I think he would better use his time if he actually worked towards student loan debt cancellation, which a lot of the folks that voted for him who were young, many uh, analysts found that the youth vote determined the election result for Biden in many states. And if young people didn't turn out in numbers that they hadn't before, Biden would have lost in key states. Why do you think young people were turning out more than ever? Because young people are more progressive than ever and Joe Biden ran as a progressive that included a promise to cancel student loan debt. And so he really botched the campaign promise there. The Bidenomics message that he has of working on economic progress from the ground up just doesn't match the current policy of raising interest rates, injecting a large amount of money into the economy to the tune of about $1.2 trillion uh, in interest paid to those who could afford to purchase bonds and make investments in a time of high interest rates. It's essentially saying in order to get inflation down, we're going to have to hand a ton of money to the wealthiest people in our country with extra money, so much so they can let it sit for a while and turn into more money. All the while, they're making more people unemployed, and that's their promise. He's going to have to change how he's governing, I think, if he really wants to win in 2024. He's going to need to make good on those promises. So. The way things stand right now, if Biden doesn't do that, if he doesn't wake up, I don't think Trump's campaign is hurt at, at all by him being in, in court because Biden's going to have to be in the Oval Office and White House. Yeah, I think that's true. And your point about uh, sort of the promises of Joe Biden not matching where we're at, you know, three years into this, it's definitely well put. We just uh, there was a poll recently that showed that Republicans have the largest advantage over Democrats on keeping America prosperous since 1991. Obviously, this week we have President Biden all of a sudden announcing uh, that border wall will be constructed in Texas, something we're going to talk about a little bit later. Uh, and it does seem like he's really struggling to pr deliver on the Build Back Better Bidenomics, whatever policies uh, he called them. Uh, we will have more on the those topics with more rising right after this. From day one, this administration has made clear that a border wall is not the answer. That remains our position, and our position has never wavered. That was Alejandro Mayorkas, Homeland Security Secretary in the Biden administration running apparent defense after President Biden approved additional construction of the border wall. He insisted the reporting was taken out of context. President Biden, on the other hand, doubled down yesterday, defending his move to pick back up where Trump left off, building more border barriers. Take a look. The border wall, the money was appropriated for the border wall. I tried to get them to reappropriate, to redirect that money. They didn't, they wouldn't. And in the meantime, there's nothing under the law other than they have to use the money for what was appropriate. I can't stop that. Do you believe the border wall works? No. Okay. Meanwhile, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre was grilled on Biden's apparent flip-flop. Let's watch. 
The border wall is ineffective. Why is the Homeland Security Secretary saying that it's necessary to prevent unlawful entries into the United States? I have not seen that full that full statement. I know. I, I, I hear you. I'm just saying I've not seen that full his full statement uh, on that. What I can t speak to is for the president. The president has been very clear that he doesn't believe it's a, it's effective. He answered that question of your colleague. That's what I can speak to. That's what we're going to talk about. And we've actually said there are smarter ways and more effective ways in dealing with this. Meanwhile, HUD Secretary Julian Castro blasted Biden's decision, calling out yet another promise that appears to have been broken. Watch. It looks like this is a promise broken. Uh, there's no easy way to describe this other than a flip-flop from President Biden. He said in the 2020 campaign that he would not uh, build another foot of Trump's border wall, that uh, it was a waste of money, didn't make any sense. This is responsive to the pressure, especially the attacks from Republicans that Biden has gotten, uh, that I think he, he and his team are probably afraid is making him seem too soft on immigration. And so they're taking a political gamble here. Well, this is quite a mess for the Biden administration, right? Uh, as you've got people like Julian Castro calling out the Biden administration for flip-flopping. Obviously, this is a big difference from what Joe Biden said when he declared that there would not be another foot of border wall built on his watch. Uh, and then obviously the cleanup on this, I feel like has made it even worse. So let's talk a little bit about that, Jessica. You know, in the statement that went out attributed to the Department of Homeland Security, the quote was, there is presently an acute and immediate need for more wall to be built at the border. Uh, and they cited this number of how many, you know, multiple hundreds of thousands of illegal immigrants had unlawfully crossed. So how is that not a change from the Biden administration's position where they've claimed for, you know, two plus years, three years, that the border is under operational control, there is no crisis, the border is closed. How can any of that be true from the last three years when now they're saying there's an acute and immediate need for a wall at the border? Yeah, I think just for Biden to say the wall's ineffective and then say it needs to be built are very clear contradictory statements. If the wall is ineffective and people are climbing over it uh, and you wanna stop migration for whatever reason over the Southern border, why would you continue to build the wall? It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, which I think calls into question not Biden's dishonesty, but how involved he is in a lot of the major policymaking. This was an issue that he assigned to Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris as her task as vice president. Uh, immigration across the southern border is what she was tasked to handle explicitly. And it's by far this administration's weakest policy. And so I question the impeachment inquiry against President Biden and wonder if these folks really would want Kamala Harris to become the president of the United States. Obviously, the inquiry is not just to get rid of Biden. They want to really see if there's something there with Burisma. But let's think about how poor of a job Kamala Harris has done as VP, if this is what we're dealing with right now, these contradictory statements, these policies that they campaigned on, that now they're just pursuing more of the same of what Donald Trump was doing. That's absolutely insane coming from the Democratic Party. Well, and what's interesting, too, is part of the White House's and Karine Jean-Pierre sort of scrambling to handle this emerging new crisis on top of the border crisis, obviously. Uh, you have them claiming that, like, oh, well, this was funding and uh, border construction that was approved under the, our predecessor, so we don't have a choice but to follow the law. Like, they're claiming that they're following the law by doing this and they don't have a choice. But if the law required them to build this stretch of border wall, were they just ignoring the law for the last 
three years, you know, why didn't they start this before and why, especially has the Biden administration actually been auctioning off components used to build border walls along the southern border, uh, sort of trying to remove Congress's ability to potentially require them to use it to do exactly now what they're doing in Texas. It seems like it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And I think the thing that's sort of missing from a lot of the conversations about this is the fact that just building this section of border wall in Texas does not actually fix the border crisis, because this is way more than just an issue of walls. Because again, without the complete closure of the southern border, you're not actually going to cut off unlawful crossings. And especially as long as you have the policies in place that the Biden administration has implemented, it's just going to get even worse and worse. And so you have mayors in New York, mayors in Chicago, mayors across California saying this is untenable. But the Biden administration is just sort of slapping kind of a Band-Aid on it and expecting a thumbs up from everyone, when it's not going to change if you don't return to policies in some variation of remain in Mexico, have something you know akin to Title 42. You have to have actual policies in place to actually control this and shut this down. Another stretch of border wall just isn't going to do it. Yeah, the construction of the border wall was the one policy we were running against. Trump's campaigning around build the wall led the Democrats to a position of absolutely no wall. And this is the one migration policy they are continuing. We're not saying that we want the administration to ignore immigration over the southern border because we're cool with having an open border. No Democrats are saying that. They're saying we absolutely need immigration policy. We need to address the harmful sanctions against Venezuela. We need to have some reckoning with the turmoil we caused across Latin America in the 70s and 80s uh, through our coups and uh, destabilization of the region, through CIA intervention and democratic elections abroad. We really need some reckoning with how much of this was caused by the United States, but we also need a sensible immigration policy, a process for people seeking asylum to receive their work visas, to work legally in the United States. We need policy at all. And the one policy that they decided to pursue was the continuation of the border wall, and they didn't have to. And you're right, we really need people talking about this. One person who is, is progressive congresswoman from New York, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She criticized Biden's backpedaling and people have criticized her for visiting the border under Trump, but not under Biden. So people really wanna see her say something about this. And she did, she wrote a statement that was released yesterday where she said, quote, the Biden administration was not required to expand construction of the border wall. And they certainly were not required to waive several environmental laws to expedite the building. The president needs to take responsibility for this decision and reverse the course. So there you have it. There's AOC saying it directly. Meanwhile, Republican Texas Senator Ted Cruz also criticized the administration, accusing Biden of not genuinely caring about the migrant crisis. Watch. They're experiencing now what we've been seeing for a long time, which is this is a crisis, it's out of control, but I do not believe for a minute Joe Biden wants to fix it. I think this is all window dressing to pretend he cares. His objective is he wants even more illegal immigrants. You know, I think Senator Cruz on that point is right. You know, obviously the sort of the rollout of this policy of the Biden administration now constructing a border wall uh, was not smooth. And it seems like Corrine Jean-Pierre maybe actually had not even seen this listed in the Federal Register before it became a major news item, which is obviously another breakdown of communication strategy within the Biden administration. Uh, but I do think there's sort of a clock on this where the question is, how long will it take after this where you had the White House seemingly contradicting and even Secretary Mayorkas? is trying to contradict what was published. How long until this becomes a point that they are actually using and touting 
to say, well, we're dealing with the border crisis. We're adding more wall to this. This is exactly what Donald Trump was doing and what he said we should do. And so we're serious about addressing this border crisis. But as I mentioned before, not actually doing anything to address any policy to change, to reduce the draw on people, to change the reason why so many people are risking their lives or their families and children's lives to make that dangerous journey in a way that obviously just enriches these barbaric cartels in Mexico. How long do you think it'll take before you see the White House starting to turn the corner on this and say, well, no, we're actually handling the border. It's totally fine. We're building a wall. Well, the first thing that's going to need to happen, as you point out, is the press secretary is going to need to be on the same page as the administration, which has not been the case in a lot of recent press conferences. And so I'm not sure what's going on there. It's really curious as to why Karine Jean-Pierre is not given proper information or, or briefing from the administration or if this is an intentional spin and their internal policy is different from what policy they're going to communicate to the public, which is a huge mistake on behalf of the Biden administration. Listen, if you are okay with constructing the border wall and you're like, listen, there's a group of people in the United States that really want this wall built and maybe we can win over some Americans if we just build the wall. Who cares if it's ineffective? It creates jobs. Let's build a wall on the southern border and satisfy this group of voters. Fine, own it. Say that's what you're doing. Say, you know what? This is good infrastructure. We want to build the wall so that we have official stations where we will actually legally process migrants coming over the southern border. Say anything but what you're saying right now. And so I really see this moving forward in a way where they're going to have to apologize uh, clearly for what they've done here, which is to lie about what their policy is. And so when you have prominent members of Congress like AOC from within the party criticizing you to this extent and accurately doing it, you're going to need an apology. So it's going to need an a, a apology and then probably a policy proposal for Congress legislation wise as to what we need to change immigration reform wise so that people can cross the southern border legally seeking asylum and be processed properly and documented within the United States. Because that's the main concern of a lot of Republicans is that a lot of these folks are undocumented. Uh, they're still calling them illegal immigrants. They are coming across legally. It's just that we don't have have a clear process uh, for giving those seeking asylum the proper legal paperwork. It's a failure infrastructure wise. We haven't put the manpower or infrastructure on the southern border to process the migrants coming across it. It's still happening legally. We just aren't providing them with the paperwork. And so that's really what needs to change. We need that kind of immigration reform. And if you want to think about things in the bigger picture economically, I think the administration also would be very smart to say, you know what, we're either lowering interest rates or we're going to put some public spending towards uh, jobs creation so that we can actually handle this influx of workers without having workers competing for wages. So it's going to have to be a shift from their current policy of wanting to reduce employment and raise unemployment levels because they think that will resolve inflation when we know very well it won't and has not for quite some time. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. There is a difference, I would just point out, between people who turn themselves in seeking asylum at a port of entry and the hundreds of thousands or you know upwards of millions since Biden took office who have unlawfully crossed, not at those official ports of entry. Uh, but one thing definitely right on, Karine Jean-Pierre seems to never actually be given the same music that the rest of the administration is playing from. Definitely something that we will continue to cover. There will be more rising right after this. Fox News personality Greg Gutfeld shared his rather doom and gloom outlook on the future of the country during a panel discussion on the network this week. Let's watch. This defiant refusal to reverse this decline 
argues against the survival of a country. What does that leave you with? It leaves you with you need to make war to bring peace because you have a side that cannot change because then that means an admission that their beliefs have been corrupt all the time. So in a way, you have to force them sur to surrender. Or we but could make love, not war. Uh, I tried that once. Or we have an election. I had to go to a doctor. Elections, Elections don't work. We know that. We know they don't work. They do work. Look what we have. Look what we have. No, but, but you had a moderate, we had a moderate president, and we have crime exploding everywhere. We had a Democrat president promise that he was going to be moderate, promise that he was going to unite the country, and now we have a terrible education system, but, we have no border, we have crime everywhere. Every facet of society is in peril and in chaos because our elections don't matter. They, I, no, I complete, no, elections do matter. We don't need to go to war for it. We go to the election booth and vote the people out who don't do the things oh, you you know, that's a it's a stark argument to make, but I do I feel the frustration and I feel that he's speaking for a lot of people who normally don't have a voice in the national conversation, let alone on a cable news network. Uh, and it's this idea that, you know, we've tried everything, we've done everything, and it doesn't seem like things are getting better. You know, whether or not Joe Biden was actually a Trojan horse and people believed that he was going to be a moderate and not sort of run to the left side of the Democrat Party and pursue a lot of these policies. Um, we had Trump for four years, and even when Trump was in office, there was still chaos in the streets. You know, we had all of the riots and the protests, and it doesn't seem like regardless of who's in the White House and sort of who's in control of Congress, things don't actually change. And these crime surges in, in cities around the country, you've got crime and the fentanyl crisis, especially, you know, touching on rural communities in the country who might think that they're sort of immune from some of these big city problems. It does seem, you know, to Greg's point, that nothing is working. Elections haven't solved the problems that Americans see in the long term even, you know, people who were happy with the policies that Trump implemented, you know, a lot of those things obviously didn't last because look at the border, as Gutfeld pointed out, you know, things have not meaningfully gotten better. Um, and I think this kind of goes back to some of what we were talking about in the segment about Hillary Clinton never being able to get over losing to Donald Trump and this idea that, you know, people had had enough of the establishment politics and things always going the way that they wanted and them serving special interests and lobbying firms and not the American people. But even when we got someone like Trump who was sort of elected as a rejection of this establishment system, things didn't change in the long term. And even while he was still in office, like I just said, things were not necessarily all hunky-dory across the board. So what do you make of Gutfeld's point? Is he right that essentially elections have not achieved the things that Americans want to see get better in this country? Yeah, I, I'm not sure I would define elections as the problem itself. I would define the establishment running candidates that fundamentally don't care about solutions to the problems our country faces as the, the main problem there. If you have people who are not interested in addressing the problem at its root, running for office, obviously the elections won't solve your problems. If you have people running who are willing to do that, uh, and a political system that allows anyone who's a popular candidate to have a fair shake, then elections wouldn't be such a problem. I think the system which governs elections, that forces candidates into this two-party system that is not regulated by election law and is instead deemed party business, giving the establishment of that party say over which candidate ultimately wins, that is a problem. But we can change the way we run that. To blame democracy, democracy itself and make it seem like elections are the cause of the dysfunction in the country, I just don't think 
that's identifying the problem where it exists. If we had a candidate who was running, who said, hey, the United States has made it its explicit economic policy to keep a large population of people unemployed, that is what they intend to do. Congress could very well say, you know what, there's no reason everybody who wants a job in this country shouldn't have one. That's ridiculous. But instead, we have the Federal Reserve insisting that if unemployment reaches uh, below a certain level, inflation will be a concern. And so before we see signs of inflation on the rise, they raise interest rates to make more people unemployed. They intentionally make it so that Americans are struggling to make ends meet on a regular basis. What are those people going to do? That's where we have crime. And so when we identify the problem at its root and we say, okay, you know what? Let's let everyone who wants a job, who needs money to, to pay for their family's basic needs, which if you live in the United States of America, you need dollars to pay taxes, you need dollars to provide for yourself. It's the currency we use. If you make dollars unattainable for people to get and dollars the only means for them to meet their material needs, what do you expect? I mean, seriously, we just need one candidate to say, we've actually made this economy unable to live in for about 5% of the population, which is probably a larger figure when we consider actual unemployment, not just those who are looking for a job within two months. Like seriously, we just need a candidate to run on that. So elections are not the problem and unwillingness to address the problems in our country at its root, I think is the main problem. Yeah, I think perhaps Gupfeld's argument could have been uh, substituted in a way with a point I made on yesterday's show, which was this idea the government is not your friend. It's not there to take care of you. It's there to keep going and doing the business that it's always been doing, like we've been talking about this establishment uh, sort of class, making sure that those people are comfortable and happy, and that comes at the expense of some people. Um, on the other side of things, even though I, you know, generally agree with Gottfeld in this case, some critics of his are saying that this language he used is dangerous and inciting violence. Jessica, what's your thought on that? Is this inciting rhetoric? I don't think so. I don't think this is inciting violence. I mean, there, of course, is the path of direct action for change. I think it was extremely effective when you had organizers outraged that J.P. Morgan Chase was charging overdraft fees and you had them show up to the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase's country club and put some pressure on him where he was comfortable. That's an effective way to say, hey, you have this policy that's incredibly unjust. You're literally making poor people give you some of their money for being poor. Uh, as a bank, you have FDIC insurance. You're backed up by the government with all of your deposits. Certainly, uh, if you're someone who is poor, you're not keeping above that threshold in your account where FDIC insurance won't cover it. The overdraft fees are an absurd policy that have enriched banks. And so when you have a bunch of people show up, they make the CEO uncomfortable simply by telling him what he's doing in front of his friends and how it's hurting people. I mean, that's the kind of public accountability where we have solutions that leads to policy changes within banks. So you can absolutely pursue change without elections and also without violence. So I don't think it's this dichotomy that, that Fox News made it out to be. We either need to make love, not war, or we need war. Uh, I don't really see it as that. I think we need to hold people accountable who are in positions of power, which means a lot of people need to pay attention to things that a lot of them don't have time or energy to. They get home at the end of their workday and they're tired. No one wants to watch bad news when they get home after doing a 40 plus hour a week. So I get it, but I think if people are so fed up with what's going on in the country, maybe it's time to start putting pressure on the decision makers themselves. Yeah, I definitely think that there's uh, for probably too long been this expectation, again, that maybe the government is your friend and will advocate for your best interests. And you have 
uh, things, agencies in the administrative state that are supposedly set up to protect consumers, that are there to supposedly represent your interest and protect you from monopolies and predatory practices and things like that. But I think what we've learned, you know, the, some of those examples you mentioned, overdraft fees, things like that. Now we have uh, concerns, especially among those, I think, on the right or those in the center who are honest about it, concerns about this practice of debanking practices or people or businesses that do things that these banks, boards, and leaders don't agree with. Uh, and I think it has done, uh, had kind of a good effect, even though it's been rough to see, and that is making people wake up and realize that they do actually have to be active participants in the country if they want to make sure that what they want is actually what's prioritized, because they've realized that the government cannot be trusted to actually do what is best for its people. And I think we've seen that in a number of ways, you know, whether it's been um, conservatives speaking up who are members of, you know, retirement accounts that are managed by state pension boards, and making sure that the larger asset management companies are actually reflecting their desires and their wishes, which in a retirement account is generally return on investment and profit, and making sure that they're focusing on that so that way their entire life of hard work on behalf of a public agency doesn't somehow end up flushed down the toilet because of people making investment decisions based on something other than return on that investment that these workers made over their careers. Um, I'd be interested to get your take on this idea of debanking. You know, it's been something that has uh, come about a few times where people have cited specific situations. There's concern about some companies, credit card companies specifically, that are um, sort of coding transactions for firearms or ammunition differently to sort of create this non-governmental watch list of people who have purchased firearms. There's obviously concern that that would be extended to people making other types of purchases. Um, what is your take on where that might take us? Yeah, I think a lot of the folks that raise, you know, concerns about the digital dollar provided by the government, the Federal Reserve, it would effectively be cash digitized. So with the same kind of, you know, anonymous transactions that you have when you use cash, but done over a pretty safe server where you don't have corporations extracting your information. Of course, the number one concern for many people is that while we live in the world of surveillance. The U.S. government can surveil that data if they want to. They can track your transactions. There should be some safeguards against their ability to prosecute transactions if you use the digital dollar. I do think it's just as concerning if you're using Venmo, if you're using PayPal, if you're using banking apps for transactions, that now you have Chase Bank, JP Morgan Chase collecting your data. You have a lot of these large banks having so much information on you because they have your fin financial transactions. They can use that uh, in nefarious ways as well. Also, the US government could subpoena that data. So we're going to need some protections for consumers, for anyone using any kind of digitized banking, whether it's, it's with the Fed and it's with the government, with the digital dollar, or it's with Chase Bank. I think we need that for any kind of transaction. And so I really see things going in that direction where more people are paying attention to this, more people are asking these questions. We had a hearing in Congress about this not so long ago. And so I don't think the solution is for everybody to pull their deposits out and only use cash. But I do think a, a way forward here is to have a digital dollar and have some regulations as to what transactions can be tracked here. Yeah, I will say I always thought when I was younger my grandfather was a little silly to have a coffee can full of cash always in the house uh, because he didn't trust banks being a child uh, raised after the depression. But now, the more I think about it, I think he might have been on the right track just to have something as a backup. Uh, we will continue tracking this uh, banking issue and also whether or not war or peace is possible. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. We've 
got some developing news this morning. Judge Eileen Cannon has put an indefinite pause on proceedings in the espionage case made against former, Donald, former President Donald Trump in relation to his alleged retention of classified documents post-presidency. Judge Cannon indefinitely postponed key trial dates originally scheduled from October through May of next year. Meanwhile, in a completely separate incident, the former president has been accused of spilling the country's tea again. Former President Trump reportedly shared sensitive information about American nuclear submarines with an Australian businessman who is a member of Mar-a-Lago after leaving office. This, according to the New York Times, confirming ABC's scoop, which first reported the story. Trump has found himself embroiled in the House Speaker's race, even floating the possibility of serving as interim speaker if needed. But overnight, he endorsed Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan for the top spot in the lower chamber. According to reports, some Republicans would welcome the former president taking over the speaker's gavel. But according to the House rules, he is not eligible because of his felony indictments. So a lot going on in the Trump world. I mean, this delay in the trial. Come on, Eileen. Eileen Cannon, <laughs> why are we doing this? Why are we delaying the trial? It seems to me that she's a little bit loyal to Trump still as a Trump appointee, but maybe there's another espionage case to be had with Trump just sharing his, his deep secrets that should be held within the United States government. Thankfully, he's not eligible for speaker. I think the moment he found out he wasn't eligible is the moment he endorsed Jim Jordan. I think he would have liked to have that spot. Oh, I'm sure he would have had fun with it. I mean, just the thought of him, you know, gaveling in the House and, you know, he wouldn't have delegated the House role or the Speaker role to anyone else, as is normally the practice where, you know, the Speaker of the House is not actually in the House chamber presiding every day. I think he probably would have presided all day most days because I think he would have had so much fun, you know, cutting off Democrats when their time ran out, things like that. Obviously, the rules about pending indictments made that impossible. And I think you're right. He went with the person who's probably most likely to be helpful to him and someone who has been his friend uh, all throughout his presidency and since then as well. This whole issue of continuing to find out that he was talking allegedly about state secrets to people at his club, uh, again, is just kind of creating this pattern. I think, I mean, this trial just in general is a mess, but the more new information keeps coming out, the more messy it becomes because now the prosecutors have to, again, consider, are they going to add additional charges onto this? Is this something that they need to continue investigating? Maybe they thought they were done once they found all the, you know, boxes of classified or documents marked classified allegedly in his bathroom and other places at Mar-a-Lago. But it's just procedurally, take the fact that the former president, now the 2024 Republican frontrunner, is the defendant in it. A case like this is just a mess all over the place because you're dealing with sensitive and classified information. You have to get clearances for anybody who's really working on this case. Discovery alone is taking months and months and months because there are so many documents that everybody needs to look at. And it's just, I mean, the fact that it's being delayed, I feel like, is more just a result of the fact that this is just a very, very messy case to bring, and less so because of any sort of allegiance or whatever. You know, there have been a number of rulings that Judge Cannon has made that went against Trump. Uh, so I think she's proven that she's not, you know, sort of pulling the strings to try to help this come out in his favor. Um, but I do honestly feel bad for the judge having to oversee this case and all the attorneys on both sides because it's just a disaster of classified stuff, stuff you can't say in open court, stuff that's going to have to be constantly, you know, having bench hearings and stuff like that. It is a mess. And I'm glad that it's moving forward. I wish it was happening sooner. Uh, but unfortunately, it looks like we're going to have to wait a little bit longer for this to even get underway. 
Yeah, I think there's a already a framing on Twitter of this case where it's this is a Trump appointee. It's an indefinite delay. This sounds like she's sweeping this under the rug. I don't think that's the case. I think we know very well uh, that this case wouldn't be moving forward if the judge felt this way. I think we know very well that Donald Trump is going to be tried for this in due time. And we've known from the beginning that there is a mountain of evidence to process thousands and thousands of pages, not only that, but you point out the security concerns and how much time that's going to take to get people with the proper clearance to handle this case and process the evidence. So I'm, I'm not surprised by this delay. I don't think it shows that our judicial system is uh, in disarray because a Trump loyalist is handling this case. I, I really don't see that as a, a major problem here. I think Trump is going to get his day in court for this in due time, especially considering the fact that we have text messages where he says that he knows the these documents were not declassified when he was president, and I guess it's too late to do it now. So the fact that he's still having these conversations and we're having reports of him sharing classified information, I think suggests even more that they're not gonna be able to let this go or sweep it under the rug if people are worried about that. In the speakership case, I think it's interesting he endorsed someone like Jim Jordan or felt the need to endorse anyone. As soon as Jim Jordan announced, I thought that this might be the next step is that Trump is gonna you know, throw his weight towards someone for the speakership role because it's a tough thing to get consensus within the Republican Party. Who do they have? Tom Emmer, the whip, who probably hasn't been doing the best job considering how votes have been going in Congress among the Republicans. I don't think it's gonna be Kevin McCarthy again. I don't think they're gonna go for Ro Khanna's plan as Matt Gates has wanted them to so that he can remove this motion to vacate. I really think the, the only way forward is that they're gonna need a consensus candidate. Uh, and could Jim Jordan be that guy? I don't know, he's a bit extreme, but Trump, Trump throwing his weight behind him could be something that influences uh, the decision of who's the next speaker a lot. Yeah, and I think uh, something that I've been hearing chatter-wise on the right, obviously, in addition to all of the concern over what the House is doing and how we're gonna have to go through the speaker election again, given how messy it was back in January of this year, uh, is a concern about what's gonna to happen to the investigations happening in the House into Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, the Biden administration, things like that. And for a long time, those investigations were sort of acting as a counterbalance to all of these indictments and investigations going on against former President Trump. And it was kind of providing the contrast to show that, you know, this isn't an election that's shaping up in 2024 that's between, you know, a squeaky clean guy and a bad guy. This is an election that's shaping up between somebody who, again, is under four indictments and somebody who continually has evidence coming out suggesting that whatever the official line was, whether it was, I never discussed business with my son Hunter, to I was never in business with my son Hunter, to I never directly transferred money with my son Hunter. Like, the, the what was happening in the House provided that sort of balance out of what everybody was talking about with Trump uh, and the indictments that he's facing. And of course, on both Sides, you still have the presumption of innocence. And so until anything actually comes of either of these things, you're just kind of working your way through this process with a nice, I mean, it's not nice for the American people, obviously, I think, to have to watch this happen in our politics, but this nice, even-keeled balance between both sides and who is going to be running for each party. Uh, but I wonder what you think, uh, is the House going to be able to keep the momentum up even after speaker election? You know, last time it took some 15 ballots in five days. Are they going to be able to keep uh, the momentum up on their side after a new speaker, especially if it pulls somebody like Jim Jordan, who's the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, out from that and puts him into leadership where he has a lot other concerns other than just, you know, holding committee hearings and investigating the Biden family? 
I love speculating about what could happen next here because there's so many possibilities. Let's imagine a world where they actually get their hands on some concrete evidence that there were payments from Burisma directly, directly to Joe Biden. Let's imagine a world where the Democrats have to have an open primary. I mean, that would be, I think, great for our democracy to have a real primary before a presidential race for the Democrats and not just have Joe Biden be shooed in. I think that would be amazing. But I do think there's a world where, you know, the Republicans realize that they put someone in a position of power who really wanted it. Kevin McCarthy really wanted to be speaker and the way he was making deals with Joe Biden and then breaking them, I think just goes to show that he was a bad leader. He wasn't able to represent the interests of the party in a way that was meaningful to members of the party. He had to make deals that clearly he didn't want to make good on in order to get in this role in the first place. And so I think the Republicans will be able to keep some momentum up if they get someone in the speakership role that has leadership abilities on a very basic human level. I don't think Kevin McCarthy does. I think Jim Jordan is a bit of a loose cannon, but he could surprise us. Uh, So there's a lot that could change in the realm of what's going on in Congress and what's going on in the bigger picture uh, when we think about the impeachment inquiry and what's happening in 2024 as well. So I'm kind of optimistic that there could be a world where instead Kevin McCarthy says, you know what, like, let's bring this Rokana plan to to a vote. They have some negotiation. It might not be as monumental as it is in its current form but they might get some regulations on insider trading in Congress. They might get some regulation on lobbying funds. I would love to see a world where that's the outcome here. Yeah, well, there's a lot of what ifs, as you were just discussing, uh, and we will be dealing with all of them and more uh, when we come back with more Rising. The first family's pooch, Commander Biden, may be in the doghouse, but he's out of the White House. The German Shepherd was removed from the president's residence after 12 biting incidents. So according to reports, the first lady's office was warned that she and the president could face lawsuits after Commander nipped several members of White House resident staff. Major, the Biden's first pooch, had to be rehomed too after several biting episodes. Meanwhile, the White House press secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre, dodged a reporter's question about potential legal action against the Bidens. Let's watch. There are some new pictures of Commander Biden biting a staffer again. How many times has that dog bitten the Bidens? I would refer, I would, uh, I would refer you to the Secret Service and also the First Lady's office. Okay. Uh, it's the 12th known incident of this dog biting a White House staffer. A lot of times when that happens, there's a lawsuit. Isn't the president worried about getting sued? I would refer you to the Secret Service or the First Lady's office. I don't know. For me, I'm kind of on the dog side. Dogs are a good assessor of vibes. Perhaps we've been overlooking this layer of security that should be employed at the White House. If someone's vibes are off and the dog alerts and bites them, perhaps they're doing their job as a working dog, as a guard dog. We need to keep in mind There's not a lot of jobs for dogs at the White House guarding their owner. Potentially, they should be employed to do so. We should investigate anyone they bite and use this as evidence that maybe they're worth investigating. I don't know. I'm a dog person, so I'm going to be on the side of the dog in this case. And maybe a lot of these D.C. elites coming in and out of the White House just don't know how to deal with a working dog like Commander and Major. I'm on the dog side in this. 
Oh, absolutely. I'm on the dog side in this. Are you kidding me? I mean, there's the phrase, there are no bad dogs, just bad owners. I mean, there's no reason that this dog is biting everyone, except for potentially the fact, as you pointed out, remember there was cocaine found in the White House? He very well could be trying to help us figure out who brought that cocaine in and left it in the in the West Wing. You know, this is the dog's job. He's potentially, you know, watching and talking to the actual working dogs at the White House that are with Secret Service and as they're sniffing for bombs and drugs and other things, maybe they taught him a few of their tricks and now he's just again, like you said, trying to warn us that the vibes are very much off in the White House. And again, the fact that this is not just one dog but two dogs, you could maybe write off one as maybe, you know, having a harder past, being a dog that, you know, has a background where it just couldn't acclimate well to life in the White House. But now two dogs in a row that this is happening to, it makes it more than just a coincidence. You know, this is a pattern. And even when you think about the cat that the first lady, Jill Biden, has, that cat was actually catnapped, right? That cat walked up to Jill Biden when she was holding a campaign event during the run-up to the 2020 election, and they basically just took this cat and put it in the White House so there was something adorable for the social media team to post when, you know, the dog is not fit, living up to the, the job description as being an adorable puppy, sort of like maybe they were hoping it would be. But 100% on the side of the dog in this. To me, this is a hilarious incident. I mean, we can't ignore the fact that the Bidens have these two dogs that have behavioral issues when in previous administrations, why did they always have a dog that was doodled? They always had like a golden doodle or a labradoodle. It was always such a posh kind of a dog. And I think it's good we have working dogs in the White House. When President Biden says he's a guy that represents the working class, having working dogs, I think, is essential in delivering that message and keeping up that persona. We didn't have any biting issues when they were doodled dogs. I don't know why we keep doodling dogs and breeding every dog with a poodle, but I'm glad President Biden has a purebred German Shepherd, even if it's biting people, because I think there's something to be said for these dogs being in an environment where there's always strangers coming in and out, there's always people moving around. Perhaps the problem is not that these dogs are at home, Perhaps the problem is that the people that are around the dogs don't know how to deal with them. It's been reported that a lot of these bites are Secret Service agents. It's not like they're biting people coming in for meetings with the president. It's people that are in the residence area of the White House. So that suggests to me that they should not sue because they should be well-trained to be around the dogs or acclimated to the dogs, or there should be some protocol that they put in place as people responsible for manning the first family uh, so that the dogs aren't in a situation where they feel like they should bite the Secret Service agents. I don't think they have to go away and live on the farm, and I'm kind of sad that that's the resolution here. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, as you mentioned, this is not the first or second time that Commander has gotten uh, himself into trouble dealing with these biting incidents. But what is interesting is after some of the previous ones incidents happened, the White House and the Bidens said that they were going to get training for the dog and for themselves to have the dog better acclimate, have them be better able to handle the dog. Uh, and I think maybe their admission that they were getting training and taking steps to prevent this from happening might actually end up opening them up to some liability. Again, the fact that this continued, not with just one dog, but with a second dog, and after the second dog had several incidents, more than even the first dog, and the Biden said that they were taking action to remedy it, but then that clearly didn't actually remedy the problem. I wonder if that opens them up to potentially more legal exposure when it comes to this, because they knew there was a problem. They pledged to take a corrective action, and they either didn't do that or it didn't work. Uh, and again, still very much team dog. But I feel like the Bidens didn't do enough to support a dog in that situation. Because like you pointed out, even though they were mostly doodled, 
versions of dogs. Uh, many other first families had dogs, some of them bigger. I remember uh, Bo was the Obama's dog. I think that was a Portuguese water dog. Um, and I mean, that was a big dog, but he wasn't running around tackling anybody or biting anybody. You had uh, former President George W. Bush. He actually had a little dog that once nipped a reporter's finger. Uh, I think that was Barney, a uh, little terrier that nipped a reporter at the White House during the Bush 43 years. Um, but again, it seems like this is very much a Biden dog problem. Uh, and it doesn't seem like they've taken it seriously because, again, the fact that it took this many incidents on a second dog for them to actually do something and send this one back, you know, makes you wonder, is the next dog they get going to be a doodle dog? Is there a German doodle that they could maybe bridge the gap between a working dog and a non-aggressive dog? Think about the foreign policy implications here, Spencer. How weak would we look as a nation if we have to replace the German shepherds in the White House with some little poodle thing or a terrier or even the Portuguese water dog, which looks suspiciously like a labradoodle? Uh, I don't know. I think that there are foreign policy implications to having the first family have pets that look like little fluffy things. I don't think it's a good look for America. I don't think it represents American values of being, you know, working hard people who stand up for ourselves, who are rough and tumble kind of cowboy types. I think it hurts our foreign policy. And it makes it seem like uh, we are a country that is an oligarchy, as the United Nations would define us when our leaders have all of these fluffy little dogs. So. I think it's a foreign policy concern more than anything else. Did I catch, are you a like a, a birther on Bo Obama, the Portuguese water dog? Do you not believe that that's actually a Portuguese <laughs> water dog and not a golden doodle? Because you're right. It does look suspiciously like a golden doodle. Is that what, is this where we're at? I want the DNA test. You want DNA birth certificate, <laughs> I assume, is also part of that? Yes, yes, okay, it is. That's... Yeah, I would like to see the DNA test. I want proof it's not a doodle dog and it is a Portuguese water dog, which is not much better. It's not much better, honestly, than a labradoodle. They look the same. They're both fluffy. Well, I, I wish I could pledge that we will do our best to get the <laughs> long form birth certificate for Bo Obama to find out whether or not it's a Portuguese water dog or a doodle dog. Uh, but in any case, we'll have more rising right after this. Financing a home is more expensive than ever, likely dashing dreams of many would-be home buyers. According to reports, the average long-term mortgage in the United States climbed to 7.49%, the highest it's been in two decades. Meanwhile, U.S. stocks inched up Friday after a stronger-than-expected September jobs report was released this morning. Dow Jones Industrial Average went up 289 points, or 0.8 percent. The S&P 500 also added 0.8 percent, while the Nasdaq rose 0.1 percent. Last month's jobs creation was better than predicted. The economy added over 336,000 jobs. Should be noted, however, wages lagged, rising less than expected just last month. The meager bit of relief for workers who've seen their earnings decimated by inflation was championed by Acting Labor Secretary Julie Su this morning. So earnings are up a bit. Um, you know, we definitely especially see that among lower wage workers, which is part of this idea that, you know, we the president has said we're going to build an economy that leaves no one behind. That starts by looking at who's been left behind in the past. And to the extent that those lower wage workers are seeing average gains that are uh, that are growing and also that are higher than inflation means that workers have more money in their pockets. 
I am not sure that the Biden administration is that good at communicating economic messages to the American people. I mean, the two conversations we've had so far today, including this one, about how they're messaging this stuff just is not the right way to do it. You know, I would point out this is one of the topics that I cover pretty extensively for the last two and a half years, uh, basically ever since Biden took office. And when you look at what the Dow futures did immediately after the jobs report was released, those took a nosedive more than 200 points because what this jobs report means, even though, again, it did beat what was expected by a significant margin, all that does is put more pressure on Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve to continue raising interest rates more aggressively, even though they're already at their highest level since the early 2000s. And that obviously creates more burdens for the American people, whether it's on their credit card debt, whether it's on their home buying uh, abilities. It's just not good. Even small businesses end up being hurt by this, and especially for the Biden administration to go out and take this victory lap like they do off of any economic report that looks, just even on face value, to be a positive. It doesn't change the fact that the American people are still dealing with inflation that, since Biden took office, means goods purchased today are, on average, more than 16 percent more expensive than they were Joe the day Joe Biden was sworn in. In addition, Americans, you know, since the acting labor secretary brought up wages, the American people have seen negative real wages for a majority of the time and the months that President Biden has been in the White House, including more than 24 consecutive months in a row earlier in his administration. And you put all this together and you have this home buyer, this home market, this real estate market that is completely paralyzed because people who bought a few years ago who are looking to maybe upsize or grow their family are afraid to sell their current home because they know buying a new home means they'll get these high interest rates. You have people who are looking to move from renting to buying who still can't make that jump because they know that they can't afford the interest rates that they'll be taking on. And so you've just got a situation where no one is moving anywhere. People are stuck in these high-rent apartments because they can't achieve that small part of the American dream of owning a home. And while all this is going on, you have the Biden administration and acting secretary Julie Su sitting out there going, everything is great. Is this working? Are Americans buying this? I honestly don't think so, and I hope not. And I hope today everyone that is uh, someone who supported Joe Biden or still supports Joe Biden that is outraged or upset that he's continuing Trump policies around the border should be just as outraged he's continuing Trump policies with the economy. Jerome Powell is someone who was picked to chair the Federal Reserve under the Trump administration by Donald Trump. President Biden could have very well decided we need a different kind of policy making when it comes to monetary and fiscal policy in the United States, and he deliberately chose not to do that. You can't say that you're pursuing this brand of Bidenomics that is bottom up and middle out when Jerome Powell's explicit policy is to make more people unemployed. That means the working class with the intent of reducing demand, because if less people have jobs, there's more competition in the labor market to secure a job. So workers are willing to take lower wages and benefits than they should be taking for the work they're doing and with the inflation rate, what it's at, simply because the alternative is being unemployed and struggling to make ends meet even more. That is not a friendly economy for the working class in the United States. It's a great economy if you're a big corporation that, a, that can afford to grow and survive in a high interest rate environment because now you're employing a bunch of workers that are taking very low wages and your profit margins are higher. And that's exactly what we've seen. The UAW is striking right now. Those workers took a huge pay cut in 2008 because of the recession and the trouble the auto industry was in. They have seen their wages steadily decline since then as much as 19.3%. Yet the big three, Ford, GM, and Stellantis, or, or uh, you know, Stellantis is commonly known as Chrysler, they have seen profits to the tune of $250 billion. That is insane. If you break it down, 
of the workers covered by the UAW contract, the 150,000 of them, that's $1.7 million per worker. And yet you have CEOs saying they can't afford to give this money to their workers. We have an economy that is set up. So large corporations, CEOs and shareholders profit tremendously, but working people struggle. Until they address that, they're never going to be able to say that they're uh, an administration that fights for working people. You can't have these opposite policies of your labor secretary saying, you know, we're seeing wage growth, we're seeing job growth. And then your chairman of the Federal Reserve saying their explicit policy is to make more people unemployed and bring wages down and raise interest rates so that the wealthy people who can afford to invest right now get even richer. It's absolutely absurd. And we're going to need the administration to change their tune before 2024 because Bidenomics has been now considered a term that is pejorative. It's a joke because working people haven't seen their lives improve. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, that Bidenomics is sort of the retread of Build Back Better, which was the campaign promise in 2020 that was never really delivered on. And so they were like, oh, we can't keep talking about this for the next election because we promised this with our first election and we were supposed to be doing that for the last four years. So then they just dubbed it Bidenomics. And as Joe Biden has often said, sometimes with a gaffe in there, that means to him, or at least in his mind, to build the economy from the bottom up and the middle out. But again, like you were just saying, the American people, the middle class, have not seen that. Working people have not experienced the sort of growth. And again, this idea that was originally build back better, there are still sectors of the economy that have not yet built back to where they were before COVID hit in February of 2020, let alone have been built back better in any way. And I think it's going to be interesting sort of to see the history of the at least the first term of the Biden administration and what it does to Democrats in the long term, because there have been recent polls. Gallup just had one. I believe it was earlier this week or late last week talking about how Republicans now have the greatest advantage over Democrats, just generically speaking. When you pull the American people and ask them, who do you most trust to keep America prosperous? Republicans are running away with that issue by a margin that hasn't been seen since 1991. And so, again, you have President Biden, who has made Bidenomics and the economy sort of this main focus of his administration taking over, you know, in the, still kind of the middle of COVID. He was supposed to, as he promised, lead the United States and its citizens out of COVID and build us back better. And the American people just haven't seen that. And that's reflected in those polls where they are saying, you know, we trust him less to handle the economy. And that doesn't even touch on his approval polling that's been underwater basically since he took office and continues to get some of the worst marks for his job performance when it comes to economic issues. He's just not able to win on this. And I wonder, in your opinion, you know, is he going to be able to turn this around? Obviously, he has been, like I just said, making Bidenomics and the economy a main focus of his official work and ostensibly will be part of his campaign once that's up and running a bit more. But, you know, he's been out on the road touting the supposed economic wins. He's had all of his cabinet secretaries out on the road doing the same thing, supposedly talking about how great Bidenomics has been. But then you see polls like this, you know, is Biden going to be able to turn it around by November 2024? I think it's possible, but I think it's going to take bold action. And I haven't seen the administration be prepared to take bold action. They're under a lot of pressure right now and in hot water around the migration issue. I think they know they're going to need to make some big changes in their current policy approaches to a lot of the key issues before the 2024 election. And if I was the Biden administration, my strategic advice right now, whether Joe Biden wants a second term or ultimately sees him not getting to the point uh, of getting a second term, I think for his legacy as a president, this is the right thing to do. And if he wants to win in 2024, it would be to align himself honestly with Ro Khanna and Matt Gates right now. The one barrier to major progress for working people and the improvement of their basic quality of life 
is having members of Congress actually represent the people, which means they cannot be beholden to corporate interests. There's clear legislation and a clear plan that is now bipartisan on the floor of Congress to have stock not be traded by members of Congress. So they're not considering their investments when they're making policy and regulations. And not only that, but to ban lobbying and have regulation on the lobbying of our politicians. So they're not bought and sold by these corporations. The term limits is another concern. If he endorsed those two simple policy proposals, he would immediately become a legendary progressive president. It's that serious when we consider, you know, who is Jerome Powell beholden to? Who are the members of Congress beholden to when they're not taking action to regulate these corporations that are making billions of dollars off of the backs of regular Americans that are struggling to make ends meet and they're living in mansions and living in nice houses and getting tax cuts from the presidents. It's absolutely insane that that's the state of wealth inequality in the United States of America. CEO pay is 399 times the average worker in a company. If we have these corporations being able to pay their politicians not to regulate this insane capture of the wealth created by the working people in America, like it's insane. It's exactly what Biden needs to be doing. We absolutely need a policy that's going to regulate our members of Congress and honestly, the chair of the Federal Reserve from governing in a way that's in the direct opposite of the general welfare of the American people. I think he would become really popular and probably win if he did this. Well, if Joe Biden decides to start working with Matt Gates, that would definitely be a story that you'll hear from us here. But until then, we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Former President Trump's challenger, Hillary Clinton, took to CNN this week to call for a, quote, formal deprogramming of what she calls the MAGA cult. Very strong partisans in both parties in the past. Uh, and we had very bitter battles over all kinds of things, gun control and climate change and the economy and taxes. But there wasn't this little tail of extremism waving, you know, wagging the dog of the uh, Republican Party as it is today. Mm-hmm. And sadly, so many of those extremists, those mega extremists, um, take their marching orders from Donald Trump, who has no credibility left by any measure. He's only in it for himself. He's now defending himself in civil actions and criminal actions. And when do they break with him? You know, because at some point, you know, maybe there needs to be a formal deprogramming of the cult members, but something needs to happen. 2024 candidate and Trump challenger Ron DeSantis was put in a tricky place of responding to Clinton's comments on CNBC this morning. Let's watch. Yeah, Do but you? I don't. I reject that. I mean, look, these are these are patriotic Americans. Uh, they want to see the country keep them, do though, well. How do you keep them, though, if you attack uh, you, President Trump? You've, you've had trouble walking well, you, that fine line between really attacking him and, and not wanting to alienate the, his, his uh, supporters. There's a lot of differences. These are all, this is all fair game. Uh, these folks get it. They want to see the country do well. Some people will be with Trump no matter what, but I think the bulk of the people are people that appreciate what he did. They also understand that he's okay. got limitations in terms of his elect- electability. Uh, he's going to be a, he would be a lame duck on day one if he could even get elected. It's such a funny interview. The reporter essentially asked, you know, 
Hillary Clinton said to send the MAGA folks to the gulag. What do you make of that? And then he tries to give a response to an impossible question. And he's like, you know what? You as a candidate really have to toe the line between being friendly with Trump and really campaigning against him. That's probably hard for you. What an amazing line of questions, first of all. It's kind of comedic the way he's just so frank about it. But I think this is a crazy situation. This might be another deplorables comment because she didn't say there's a rise of fascism, right-wing extremism in America. We're really going to need to think about how to deal with that. Uh, what are we gonna do in our communities to get through to a lot of people who think this way? No, she said, we need a formal deprogramming in the kind of language that someone who has a background in establishment politics would use. This is something that the Security Council would probably write in a memo to the president. And I honestly think that it's not so different from the concept of a gulag. Like I say that because it's funny, but also what she's talking about is forced ideological deep programming. That was the role of the gulag. How does she think this is gonna play out in the United States of America? I mean, seriously, it's an absurd thing to say. And the person who who was the interviewer laughs it off. Uh, I think this is a huge moment in American politics for Hillary Clinton to call for something like this. Absolutely. I mean, you brought up the deplorables comment. And when I first saw this story, I thought, oh my gosh, it's deplorables 2.0. That didn't work when she was running. So now she's like, okay, they're not just deplorable people, but they're so flawed that they literally need to be reprogrammed. Again, like you're saying, I think gulag is a fair term. You know, send these people off to gulag and maybe they'll learn a thing or two about how it's best to govern and how the United States ought to be run by people like who, Hillary Clinton? It's, it's just absurd. And the fact that we are still in 2023 talking about how she has not gotten over losing to Donald Trump in 2016 is just insane to me. Her entire, she's kind of, I don't even know how to put this. This comes off as being obviously, you know, insulting, which I think in one way it's meant to be, but like somebody who gets dumped and then their entire personality becomes the fact that they were dumped. Like Hillary Clinton had a career before she ran for president. She could have had a career after she ran for president and lost, but instead she continually brings this up over and over again. And her entire personality is about opposing Donald Trump apparently name-calling his supporters and suggesting that they be reprogrammed, which is very much not an okay thing that we do here for all the Democrats talk about, we love our democracy. You know, sending people for cultural reprogramming is very much not in line with what a democracy should be doing. And I'm reminded of a commencement address she gave, uh, I think it was over a year after the 2016 election, in which she spent the entire commencement address where she's supposed to be inspiring this next generation of young minds to be excited for the future and maybe impart some life advice to them. She spent the entire commencement address complaining about how she lost the election, and not even that, but again, how this election was stolen from her, allegedly, because in her mind, as with most of these establishment types, it was her turn to be president, and those pesky Americans who dared to think for themselves and not go along with what the establishment wanted stole that from her. So in a way, she's right. The election was stolen from her, but that's only because the American people decided that what the establishment wanted is not what they wanted or needed at that point in American history. And to hear her still dragging this grudge match out over and over again is getting so tired and old. And it would be interesting to see if she could bring herself to, again, take up a different topic to actually make a positive difference in this country. She could. She's just choosing not to and continually being hung up on this one point in history and just waging this vendetta that apparently will never end. Yeah, she's going on year four of her I Lost tour. Actually, no, we're approaching year seven of Hillary Clinton's I Lost tour. But Spencer, imagine how hard it is for her to have cheated to get the Democratic nomination and then still lose. 
What's that got to do to a woman's <laughs> ego? I mean, come on, to cheat and still ultimately lose. Hillary Clinton in 2016, I'm not talking about the general election, by the way. We know that in 2016, there was a huge court case around what she did within the Democratic Party, which needed a lot of funds. She injected a lot of funds into the Democratic Party. And then when the primary was still happening and she was essentially competing with Bernie Sanders for the Democratic nomination, she tapped into the victory fund that was supposed to be used in the general election for the candidate. So she had access to way more funds that she should not have had access to within the Democratic Party. Use those to run against Bernie Sanders, who was polling extremely well, was the candidate that could beat Donald Trump in a general election. And then not only this, but they had the dirty politics internally within the DNC, which we know Hillary Clinton had her hands on the levers of, where they took away Bernie Sanders' entire voter database weeks before the Iowa caucus. So even within the Democratic Party, she was pulling these dirty tricks uh, in ways more than just tapping into their bank accounts for her own use. This is someone who pulled every single stop to try and win and still lost. And now I think, Spencer, you're right. It's become her entire personality. And to say that these people's minds are so sour and wrong that they need to be deprogrammed, I think it's coming from a really personal place because they voted against her. And she thinks so highly of herself that something must be wrong with their minds for them not to be aligned with her. Let's not forget the years and years, if not decades, uh, it actually really is decades, if not uh, you know a century or more of programming that the American people had to vote with the establishment way of thinking. These people have already been programmed. People are now questioning the programming and questioning their trust in government because of the kind of neoliberal programming that supported candidates like Hillary Clinton. This is the direct result of that. And so she's going to need to grapple with that, but I'm not confident she will. No, I, I mean, I think she's proven that she literally can't bring herself to grapple with that fact. Um, and like you were saying, you know, how hard is it to be Hillary Clinton knowing that, again, you rigged the primary on the Democrat side just to make sure that, you know, kind of thought that her last obstacle was a pesky, you know, Democrat like Bernie Sanders who might try to challenge her, but thought she had that out of the way and she would have no problem beating whoever the Republican was and definitely have no problem beating Donald Trump only to lose and then turn around four years later and watch Joe Biden from his basement beat Donald Trump and then go on to be the kind of president that Joe Biden is, where he's just constantly getting struck down at the Supreme Court. He can't make it through a speech without you know, whispering, yelling, all these other things. Most of the things that he's tried to do have been struck down by the Supreme Court. He's now flip-flopping and going back and building chunks of border wall. You know, for her to think, I wouldn't have governed like that, like surely Hillary Clinton is just watching this and going, what did I do wrong? And unfortunately for her, the answer is she was Hillary Clinton. And that was something that was just not going to work. Uh, and obviously that is gotta be a terrible thing for her to watch and see happening. And then to see Donald Trump now coming back again and her probably thinking, is my party gonna have to go through this again? And probably, I'm sure in some corner of her mind, she's been thinking about throwing her name in the ring, you know, to replace Biden on the Democrat ballot. Because when you're somebody who is this obsessed I'm sure she's had the thought about, well, what if, you know, we replace Kamala Harris with me as the vice presidential candidate? Or what if I take the top of the ticket and run with Harris as sort of this, you know, old guard, supposedly new guard that's not new uh, ticket? And I just, I honestly can't imagine what it's like to be Hillary Clinton, but I would not want to be either her therapist or probably her dog or definitely not Bill Clinton. I mean, when you think about it in the grand scheme of things, like life has not 
been that kind to Hillary Clinton. I don't think anyone deserves necessarily to have a life that's easy, but Hillary Clinton has really gone through it. Uh, and it's just a shame that, again, she's not taking the opportunities and the platform that she does have as somebody who was a U.S. senator, who was a first lady, who has done all this work in different fields. The fact that she's not even trying to use the platform that she did get and built over the years for anything worthwhile is, I think, really sad and kind of, again, an indictment of what her values are and how uh, sort of very thin her commitment to the principles she espoused when she was running in 2016 actually are, since she's just basically abandoned all those things ever since she lost to, again, as we've been talking about, making her entire personality, career, speaking engagements, everything about Donald Trump. Yeah, I think Hillary Clinton in the early days when she was an activist speaking on the floor of Congress for policies like Medicare for all, advocating for people who don't have health care in the United States. That's a very different person from the Hillary Clinton that ran in 2016. It's a very different Hillary Clinton than was the first lady under Bill's presidency. And so I think a, a person like Hillary Clinton, who had values at one point, who would understand when Bernie Sanders sat before the board, the editorial board of the New York Times, when they were interviewing Democratic candidates, deciding who they would endorse in 2020. And they asked him what he thought of this same group of people that Hillary Clinton said needs formal deprogramming. He said, what we've got is a working class that's been left behind policy-wise in the United States. They're living in an economy that has been rigged against them. They work for 40 hours a week or more and still struggle to pay their bills. They are not getting a fair shake. They don't trust their government because election after election, they promise to change this and make life better for everyday working people in America. And then they don't. So obviously they're looking for alternatives. Some of them, based on their fear that things might not go well for them, they might have an accident and not be able to pay their bills and might become homeless because most people in the United States are on the edge of that. Those people in that mindset of fear might actually like a demagogue uh, who says, we're gonna shake things up, we're gonna drain the swamp, we're gonna change how this whole thing works. They might be so desperate for change that they're not necessarily a fascist or right-wing extremist who needs deprogramming. They're probably regular working people who are terrified and who don't pay as close to politics as Hillary Clinton does, who might not fully be aware that they might be aligning themselves with some right-wing extremists. And Hillary Clinton is so disconnected from the working class in America that she doesn't realize really what people who vote for Donald Trump believe in or who they are. And so I think that's her fundamental problem is that she's disconnected and only thinking about her own career. Yeah, and I think we've seen some hints of that same line of thinking uh, from President Biden and his administration. I'm remembering his very angry speech in Philadelphia talking about, you know, fascism and the importance of democracy. And it was that same sort of broad brush that he was using to paint, again, basically everyone on the right as fascists and enemies of democracy, when in fact, a lot of the people who had voted for Trump in 2016 had been Democrat voters up until that point, but again, just felt so left behind and lost in this country and this economy that they felt like they had to shake things up. Uh, and so I think Democrats, especially people like Hillary Clinton, clearly, and Joe Biden potentially now in 2024 do themselves in their campaigns a real disservice when they paint with that broad brush, because again, oftentimes they're insulting the people who would otherwise prefer maybe to vote for their party. Uh, but that's something definitely to keep an eye on as the election progresses. We'll be right back with more Rising right after this. Amid the strike of some 25,000 United Auto Workers, Acting Secretary of Labor Julie Su found herself in some hot water when she was pressed on air about the Biden administration's subsidization of electric vehicle production. Let's watch. 
Why is the government offering rich people credits to buy expensive cars? <laughs> so, a couple of things. Um, there is widespread support in the country for um, tax credits that will help to bring manufacturing jobs to the United States. Um, that's part of what we're trying to do. The other is that we do have a climate crisis, right? We saw record heat across the entire country. Oh, without a doubt. Globe, really. Can I just jump in? Without a doubt. I totally yeah, agree yeah. with you, but I just think we're conflating solving a climate crisis with driving really heavy SUVs that run on electricity. <laughs> Are those two things part of the same story? Because I don't get it. If I'm driving an, an electrified F-150, am I really saving the planet? <laughs> right. Well, so um, we could probably have a conversation now about, about personal choices relating to cars. I do think as a policy matter, the more that we can invest in um, industries, in manufacturing, including in transportation, that transitions us to a place where um, we're not, you know, we're not continue to pollute the planet, right? We're con we, we have a, a method by which we can both uh, bring down emissions yeah. and also create good jobs. Meanwhile, General Motors CEO Mary Barrow also ended up subject of online ridicule when she tried to defend her $30 million salary despite UAW strikers' pleas for a pay raise. The union is demanding, asking for a 40% wage increase over four years. They're asking for that in part because they say CEOs like yourself, uh, leading the big three, are making those kind of pay increases over the course of the last four years. You've seen a 34% pay increase in your salary. You make almost $30 million. Why should your workers not get the same type of pay increases that you're getting leading the company? Well, if you look at uh, compensation, my compensation, 92% of it is based on performance of the company. I think one of the strong aspects of the way our compensation for our represented employees is designed is not only do, are we putting a 20% increase on the table, we have profit sharing. So when the company does well, everyone does well. And for the last several years, that's resulted in record profit sharing for our represented employees. And I think you have to look at the whole uh, compensation package, not only 20% increase in gross wage, but also uh, the profit sharing aspect of it, world-class health care, and there's several other features. Today, UAW workers have entered their fourth week of striking now, and as we just heard, it doesn't seem like the two sides have come any closer together. You know, the Biden administration, their argument has been that record profits for companies like General Motors should mean a record contract for the workers. Uh, but a lot of people are pointing to, as we saw in the comments from the acting labor secretary, that this is actually also a response to what the Biden administration is trying to force with this energy, quote unquote, transition that requires people to sort of put the market forces aside and has the Biden administration mandating new miles per gallon standards, mandating new equipment and uh, sort of good standards for this. That's actually, ironically, forcing the Biden administration to sign mem uh, memorandums of understanding with foreign countries to have supply chains that can actually produce these electric vehicles that they claim the market here in the U.S. actually wants. And so you have this problem where the Biden administration is saying, again, Joe Biden is supposedly the most pro-labor president in history. But at the same time that he's pushing for supposedly a record contract for these auto workers in Michigan, his administration is simultaneously enacting deals in order to offshore more jobs and more supply chains that are needed to produce these electric vehicles. So is this just another case, much like with now building the wall in Texas, President Biden is saying one thing that's politically convenient while doing the opposite with his actual actions? I thought this was just like a really bad performance on the labor secretary's behalf because Biden's administration 
could have very easily said if they had anyone else responding to that question, well, this is just one of many approaches we have to righting a lot of the wrongs in the auto industry and to transitioning towards a more green economy. They could say, yes, there is a tax credit given to people who decide to use an electric vehicle because this gets us closer to reducing carbon emissions and to our goal of reducing carbon emissions by 2030 and 2050, our projected goals. We need to cut emissions by 50%. That means people are going to need to be driving electric cars, but it's important to frame this in the political context we exist in. What were the tax cuts for the wealthiest people in the country under the Trump administration? Did they have to do anything to get those tax cuts? A tax credit is not the US government just handing money to someone. It's them saying, okay, whatever your income was for this year, you pay this much less of the income you've earned in taxes. So if they purchase an electric vehicle, which is something that is good for a transition to renewable energy, guess what? They pay that much less in taxes. Trump gave tax cuts to the wealthiest people asking for nothing in return. So that kind of a framing could have just flipped this question on its head. I agree that the administration should be doing much more. Uh, we definitely need high-speed rails. We definitely need green uh, public transportation and more investment in transportation. And it's good that they're in solidarity with the auto workers right now. I think a lot of this framing has been why is Biden supporting the electrical or electric vehicle industry at the expense of these traditional auto workers at the big three. But I don't think we have to make that trade off. I think Biden doing a carrot approach rather than a stick approach here by saying there's a tax credit if you purchase electric vehicles instead of saying, you know, we're gonna tax these large corporations that have a tendency to put their tax push their taxes onto consumers, that might not be the right approach here. But I think it's it's good that they are taking an approach at all to transition towards renewable energy, but what a, what a PR masterclass and what not to do when you're asked a tough question like this. Yeah, I feel like the Biden administration has had a very rough go with many things, but especially their attempts at public relations campaigns related to this electric vehicle transition that they're trying to force, it has just not gone well. I remember back to when the energy secretary, Jennifer Granholm, tried to do this electric vehicle summer road trip, and it just ended in disaster, and you ended up, you know, the police being called at one of these charging stations because one of Granholm's staffers had used a gasoline-powered car to block an electric vehicle charging space, so by the time she got there with her actual EV, she wouldn't have to wait to charge the car. Um, and I think, as was mentioned, sort of the realization on that electric vehicle road trip is this very weird and, again, sort of ideologically driven issue that the Biden administration has, and that is that Teslas, created by Elon Musk, are the best-selling electric vehicles in the country. Their charging network that Tesla has created, again, without the government's help. You know, you got Biden saying now that he has to build this electric vehicle charging network, but that's really not for Tesla EVs. That's for the EVs created by Ford or GM or the other automakers. Uh, but you have this situation where, again, Elon Musk has been super, super successful in getting adoption of electric vehicles and making them feasible and making them fun to drive and cool to drive and not sort of uh, an ostracizing factor that somebody might have if that's the vehicle that they choose to use. Uh, but Joe Biden won't talk about that, even though that's one of the best proof cases that electric vehicles can replace sometimes, you know, family cars, minivans, SUVs. He's got the Cybertruck coming that uh, goodness knows what that's going to do. And even working on, you know, electric Tesla built semi trucks uh, to take even more of those, uh, you know, theoretically very gas intensive use vehicles off the roads. But Joe Biden won't talk about it because he doesn't like Elon Musk's politics, even though, again, Elon Musk has already done what Joe Biden is trying to do and trying to force. 
And so, you know, why won't he just get over himself and over Democrats and say, look at what Elon Musk is doing. More companies in the United States should do what he's doing because he's having the effect that we want without forcing people to do it. He's gotten this huge market share for electric vehicles without forcing anybody to do it. Yeah, I think the one thing that Elon Musk does have is a, a lot of government subsidies. So he is selling a lot of cars and is profitable thanks to a lot of tax credits that uh, he's been able to sell because he is one of the car manufacturers that produces electric vehicles. So other companies that are producing gas powered, powered vehicles overwhelmingly have been able to purchase tax credits from Tesla, which has made it profitable in most quarters. And the $4.9 billion in government subsidies that Tesla has used to launch their production of these electric vehicles. They essentially lied to get a sustainability loan from the government and said that they had a model that would work and could go into production. Uh, he wanted to get another loan from Daimler and Daimler said, you know, maybe we'll give you a loan and invest if you also get the sustainability loan. So Elon lied, said he already got the sustainability loan from the government lied on the application to the government saying he already had a car model that could go into production. Then he actually got the sustainability loan and the loan from Daimler, and that's what the Tesla empire is fueled by. It's a lot of government subsidies, actually. And I think this goes to show that if we're already spending $4.9 billion on Tesla, creating electric cars that are not popularly used by the masses, why did we not invest directly $4.9 billion into electric-powered public transportation? I really think that's a criticism that we can apply to the private market, to people like Elon Musk, but also to people like the labor secretary. Why didn't she just give a response like, you know what, we really do need to invest in public transportation that is electric, not just electric vehicles uh, for the wealthiest people in the country. That would have been a simple response. I think the administration really needs to reprioritize uh, where funding is going. I will say that those subsidies didn't happen under Biden but they did happen under uh, other presidencies where this was not the major focus, where people weren't criticizing uh, the subsidies going to electric cars and electric car manufacturing. We really need subsidies going towards public transportation if we're gonna make a big difference here. Yeah, I think that the federal government should just hand us the controls to decide where funding is spent. I think we would do a much better job, it seems, than what most of the government has done so far, at least in recent memory. But that today does it all for us on Rising. Jessica, it's been great, as always, a real hoot on this Friday to be with you. I hope you have a great weekend. It's always fun when we do a show together. Happy Friday, everybody. Have a good weekend, Spencer. Happy Friday. Robbie and Bree will be back on Monday, so be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Have a great weekend. Bye, y'all.